0: So I've been following along in this series. We're in a series called Warrior, going through the life of David. And I realize that some of you, you don't feel like a warrior. You're kind of waiting for the next series. Would you guys please let me know what that is? Because I, I just don't quite get into the warrior thing. But what we're talking about is this man, David, who does have this warrior spirit about him. And what we've said is a warrior is someone who pursues God with everything they've got. He's a, he's a man, And It can be a woman, it can be a student, it can be a kid who is after God's heart with everything they've got. Their attitudes, their actions, they set them apart. They have set themselves apart for the cause of following Jesus Christ with everything they've got. I started reading along knowing that this was the series we would be in. I, I picked it up. In First Samuel, I was reading through the life of Saul a little bit. He started with such promise, and then and then he declined. And then God has David anointed, and, and David comes on the scene and and kills a giant, and when no one else would, and does such a uh, come, comes on, on the scene in such spectacular fashion. And then you watch his life, and you watch all the the military conquests. You watch how God blesses him, how God uses him to do so many things, both in and First and Second Samuel and Chronicles. And and if you're looking for something to read this summer, I would just encourage you just to just to pick up and read along. You can follow with us when you're not here, watch the messages online, but even when you're not here just Monday through Saturday, I would encourage you to read the life of David. You'll, you'll see so many different things that are, that are going on that we're not going to have time to get to. And, and I got to the chapter where I'm going to be speaking from today. We're going to be sec- in 2 Samuel chapter 10. And I just thought, there's, for me, there's a, a really compelling statement in this chapter, but this chapter and a lot of David's life reads like a a incredible novel. I mean, it would be if Mel Gibson ever gets a hold of the rights. I mean, we won't be allowed to go see it because it'll have so much like crazy wild stuff in it, unless it's majorly edited. I mean, it's reading through this. I mean, it's, it's incredible what God does. And this scene today could definitely be a scene from like Braveheart or, or, or something like that. Second Samuel chapter 10 starts off with some cousins of the people of Israel. They're called the Ammonites. They're the descendants of Lot. And some of you have cousins. Most all of you have cousins. Some of you have cousins that are still in town. And so you have to just kind of keep a straight face while I say this, but you understand that sometimes you get along with cousins really well and then sometimes you don't, right? And I know a lot of you have cousins visiting, so just you and me, we're good right now. Uh, you know, sometimes they, they eat you out of house and home. Uh, they sleep in your bed. Uh, and sometimes they just won't leave. And, um, and then uh, sometimes it's great. I mean, they buy you things, treat you things, take you places. They're part of your family and, and you just love them. And the people of Israel with the Ammonites, they have this kind of cousin relationship where sometimes things are great, a lot of times things are not. At this particular time, things have been okay. I mean, Saul subdued the Ammonites and they're kind of been they've kind of been on their own. They're this little small nation state, kind of right next to Israel, right on the east side of the Jordan, and and everything is good. Well, then the king of the Ammonites, he, he dies, and so David sends a group of guys to this king to wish him well, good wishes on behalf of King David, the king of Israel. So he sends his guys. As the guys are arriving, a word about their arrival has come, and Some folks get into the king's ear, the new king's ear, and say, listen, I'm not sure David really means well here. I know he says he does, but, you know, he's a cousin, so you never can tell. And uh, what's happened here is we think you should, like, make a statement so that he knows that we are not to be messed with. So these men come, probably bringing gifts, good wishes from King David. And the new king has their beards cut in half, I mean, this would be a massive insult. Can you imagine if we started advertising that the guys from Duck Dynasty all had been insulted by Democrats and their beards were cut in half? I don't know what happened. That was a political joke. Probably shouldn't have done. But anyway, the, uh, they had their beards cut in half by some other, by the Kardashians. That They cut their beards in half. And the, uh, I mean, you know, thankfully we have HD screens. So you might can see I have facial hair. If it wasn't for HD, you know, you wouldn't know. And my beard doesn't need to be cut in half. With a washcloth, it could be wiped off in half, and I would be it would be embarrassing, you know? But particularly in a Middle Eastern culture, it's really embarrassing. I mean, it's humiliating. And then just to add to it, they would have been wearing a robe of some kind of tunic that, that would go all the way to the ground. It would be their, their man dress, but that's what they wore in the, in the day. And this king, to insult them, he cuts it off just below the waist. He cuts off all of their, their garments and gives them a mini dress and then some and sends them back on their way. Humiliated and frustrated. The story picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5, when it was told to David, he sent to meet them, his own men, who had been humiliated. For the men were greatly ashamed and the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now for me, that would be six months for these guys. They're probably just there a few days and they get things trimmed up and, and back squared away and then they come back to their families. And then the armies begin to move. And in verse seven, it says, when David heard of all this, he sent Joab and all the host of his mighty men. The stories of David's mighty men are incredible as well, by the way, these a couple hundred guys that have just had all these great feats. But David sends his very best, and he sends Joab to take care of what has happened here, this wrong, this injustice. He has been compelled to act with whatever he has in his power. And the Ammonites, while this is going on, they've sent word to the Syrians that they've picked a fight with Israel. And the Ammonites, they hire over 33,000 Syrians to come join the fight. I mean, I know it's the Old Testament, but it could very easily be the New York Times, right? I mean, someone east of the Jordan has gotten upset with Israel and hired Syrians to go fight them. I mean, some things don't seem to ever change, but one day Jesus will will take care of that. But in the meantime, as everyone's getting ready, the the Scriptures don't really tell us, but as everyone is getting set up for the fight on the battlefield, and the, the nation of Israel goes, and the Ammonites and the Syrians go, the Syrians get the advantage, perhaps just by their sheer numbers, and they have absolutely and completely surrounded the army of Israel on the battlefield. And so here we are in Second Samuel 10, after all the victories, after all the conquests, all of everything that has been the reign of King David. Here we are, humiliated, frustrated, surrounded by enemies. Ever been there? Humiliated by lies or gossip or by others finding out about mistakes that you made in the past you thought would never come back to haunt you, but here they are all out in the open and exposed. Frustrated. Frustrated that nothing you've tried is working. Nothing you've tried is working to mend the relationship, to solve the problem, or to bring about the change that will finally bring the peace that you so desperately want to have. Or maybe today you feel like you are surrounded by the most difficult of circumstances. It could be a financial challenge, it could be a health challenge, it could be something that others may not understand as a real trial for you, but it, but it is and it weighs on you and you feel like you are never ever going to be able to dig yourself out of the hole that you find yourself in. It's in every thought. It weighs you down every minute of the day and you are praying and you're asking God time after time after time, God, I just need some kind of breakthrough. Humiliated, frustrated, surrounded by really, really difficult circumstances. So David sends Joab. And we pick up the story where Joab is on the battlefield. Joab is no saint, by the way. I mean, he's kind of interesting to read about. He's a military opportunist who does whatever he sees fit by and large. He has done some things behind the king's back already in the David narrative, and he will one day in the future, he will do some things behind his back again. But the words that he speaks on this day and this battlefield, I believe are absolutely anointed by God, and I believe they're a message for us today, just as they were then. Joab stands up on the battlefield, and he does that thing that that coaches like to do and especially parents like to do. And you you know what I'm talking about? It's that thing where one person asks a question and then you answer loud enough for everyone to hear. Have you ever done that? We like make a correction with your kids. Like we will not throw that on the floor anymore. It's to be put in your mouth. And so you don't just say it to one child because you want this law that you're establishing to be obeyed by everyone around you. In fact, if the neighbor kids hear it, it's gonna be okay too. And so he makes this announcement after being asked for one person for everyone to hear it loud enough for everyone to hear. I believe we need to hear it today. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, Joab announces to everyone, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Be courageous, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God and may the Lord do What's good for him. Many times it's easy to choose to remain in the shadow and, and not step up. I mean, it would have been easy just to go and take care of the guys who had been insulted and, and not worry about it. Just take care of them and then just completely retreat. It's, it's easy to be really, really passive in the middle of humiliating and frustrating circumstances. When things are weighing you down, it's easy to retreat. It's easier to retreat and not make a, a new attempt to rescue your your marriage or to rescue your family, to not step up, to not do anything proactive, but just kind of to let the struggles go and and believing that one day this will all pass and everything will somehow miraculously be be fine again. It's, It's easy to choose not to act boldly out of the fear that even if we succeed today, at some point in the future, we are most likely going to let someone down again. But as a follower of Jesus, we are commanded, encouraged to be of good courage. When you as a follower of Jesus step into a circumstance, you are representing the hands and feet of Christ himself. So when you step in somewhere and you speak over what is good and true and pure and lovely, or you show kindness, or you reach out to someone who is an outcast when no one else will, you have committed an act of valor even if no one else sees it. And truly it changes your life from the everyday ordinary, natural, and to one that is supernatural. Loud enough for everyone to hear it, Joab says, be of good courage. The apostle Paul says the same thing to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, keep your eyes open. Hold tight to your convictions. Give it all you've got. Be resolute and love without stopping. What a great, great command for us today. A warrior doesn't run and hide. A warrior doesn't wait for someone else to come around for a solution, but does what he or she knows to do and lets God do the rest. And Joab punctuates this with a, a crucial reminder. Just for emphasis, he says, let's not just be courageous for ourselves. it's Not just, not just be of good courage so that we walk out of here alive today, but be, of, be courageous for our people. This battle is not just about you. Your circumstances, no matter what they are today, whether it's of your own making, whether it's an addiction or a sin issue, whether it's something external, whether it's something from the outside that your family's dealing with, whatever it is, if it's humiliating, frustrating, suffocating circumstances, they're not just about you. There's way more at stake here. Maybe about your family. Maybe about the people that God has put around you to influence. To share him with, about, about your friends. It's about the street where you live. When the people of God have the courage to do what he has put in front of them, truly it impacts everybody. And then Joab makes this other statement that's just incredible. He says, and then may the Lord do what seems good to him. May God do what seems good to him. Now, for most people, that's a problem. I mean, I gotta be honest. For me, at times, that's a problem. I mean, Joab turns this into a battle cry. He says, listen, we're gonna go out here, we're gonna do everything we know to do, and then God will do what what he's going to do. But honestly, don't you wish sometimes God would just do what you tell him to do? I mean, it's okay. We're in church. We're good. He understands. We have questions, right? I mean, don't we do that sometimes in prayer? Like, God, I, I'm going to pray this, and you, if you could answer this by here, that would be what's best for me, and so, God, I assume that's what you think is best, and so I'm just going to map it out, and God, if you could just follow along, we'll, we'll be fine, right? I mean, think about what Joab has said, and in the context where he's saying it. There is a ruthless trust in this statement. He's about to go to battle, and only a fool would think that he has a 100% chance of coming off the battlefield in one, on one piece after going into it. But he says, listen, I'm going into the battle. We're gonna, we're gonna face these people who have surrounded us. We're gonna do whatever it takes and we're gonna trust that at the end of the day, no matter what happens to us, God is going to do whatever was best in his eyes. We're gonna do what we know how to do. And then God's gonna do what he's gonna do. It reminds me of King King Saul's son, Jonathan. A story I've told before, I I love this story from 1 Samuel. Jonathan has grown weary of his dad, Saul, who is at that point in his reign where he's just declined. He's gotten passive, he's gotten passive aggressive and the Philistine army is, is not too far away and they need to be taking him out and Saul says, well, we're not gonna take him out right now. We're just gonna hang out for a while and Jonathan looks at his armor bearer. He's the king's son, so he has an armor bearer. He looks at his armor bearer and he says, why don't we go take him out? And the armor bearer says, okay, well, what do you have in mind? And so they go, and they go to the edge of a cliff, and the army is down below, and Jonathan says to his armor bearer, he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to crawl down the cliff, and we're going to let everyone know that we're coming. They're going to see that we're coming because we're going to be wide out here in the open for everyone to see, and, and perhaps God will act, the two of us, against all of them. Maybe we'll win. I mean, it's inferred in that Maybe we won't. But maybe if we do what we know how to do, God will take care of the rest. It reminds me of Moses leading the people of Israel for the first time. I mean, the plagues are gone and and now Pharaoh has finally said, you can take those people and get out of here. And he's had a change of heart and he starts pursuing the people and, and God has had Moses lead the people all the way to the Red Sea. And so here he is, with a sea that's impossible to cross on one side of him and Pharaoh and his army and Moses has all these people, hundreds of thousands, perhaps a couple of million people there in front of him who are completely unprotected. They have no way to defend themselves and here they are with the Red Sea and Moses finds himself humiliated, frustrated and trapped. He's got people calling him names, doing all kinds of things and he is in this circumstance because he has obeyed God. And then Moses backed up against the Red Sea makes a statement of what he knew to be true. It's absolutely incredible. Exodus fourteen fourteen. he says to all the people, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's what Moses said to the people. And then at the prompting of God, Moses turned around, he raised his staff over the Red Sea and the, and the wind began to blow and it, It began to blow and it blew all night long and and slowly but surely. And I would love to know which one of those exasperated, complaining Israelites was the first one to notice that the wind is blowing and the ground is drying up and the ground is really drying up now. And it looks like there's gonna be space for all of us. Hey, we can get through there. We're gonna cross and go to the other side of this sea. And one of the greatest miracles in the scripture, God makes a highway through that sea and it also ends up being the same place where God vanquishes their enemies all at the same time. Because God was fighting for them. He came up with things that no one else could. I don't know how many times the Bible says it, but I want to give you a few because it says it over and over and over again. Deuteronomy 3 verse 22 says, do not be afraid of them. Whatever it is, the Lord your God himself will fight for you. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 says, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. Joshua 23 verse 10 says, each one of you will put to flight a thousand of the enemy for the Lord, your God fights for you. What? Just as he has promised. I don't know what your circumstances are right now. I don't know what is going on in your life, but I can tell you should be feeling kind of strong about now. I'm I'm feeling strong boys. Come on, let's do this thing. I'm feeling strong. I should be feeling confident right now because God himself has said he is in the battle. He's in the midst of the circumstances with me. Nehemiah chapter four, verse 20 says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Why? Because our God will fight for us over and over again. The Bible proclaims this truth to all would have the faith to believe the God of angel armies will fight for you. Amazing, amazing. The God of the universe spoke the world into existence. If you obey him, if you follow him, if you do what you know to do, he will do what only he can. I love pulling out and reading most every July 4th. My mom gave me a book a couple of years ago called Sacred Fire. It's a book about George Washington. I was reading over it earlier this week and Washington in his letters about the different battles that he was facing, even at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, really even before it, it was a war. There was just some militia who were kind of standing up and fighting different battles here and there as, as Washington penned letters later on time and time and time again. He didn't really know all that God was doing. How could he? But time and time again, this same phrase keeps coming up from his own hand. He says, he says, the God of armies is fighting for us. They were against impossible odds in those early days. trying to to give us the nation where we live today in Washington over and over again. He had a confidence, a faith, a ruthless trust that the God of armies was fighting with him. And it gave him the strength to keep going against impossible odds and numbers and better artillery and better trained troops time and time and time again. The Lord will fight for you You need only be still. Such a good verse. And I love what God says in verse 15 of Exodus 14. This is, this is great. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. I love that. Moses is doing the best he can, right? The Lord will fight for you. Be still. And God says, I'm fighting for you. Get moving. I mean, sooner or later, something is going to have to happen. You are going to have to take some kind of action. I love what Pastor Stephen Furtick says. He says, faith is knowing who God is and acting accordingly. God fights when we move in confidence. You do what you know to do. And then watch God do what only he can do. Whatever it is in relationships and circumstances, we can have a ruthless faith and trust if we're obedient to him. And that particular story in the Red Sea that day, they crossed and the Pharaoh's army was vanquished and Moses gets to the other side in Exodus 15. And he says, the Lord is a warrior. He's the warrior. The Lord is his name. Joab's encouraged the people on this day. He says, we're, we're trapped Humiliated, exasperated, trapped. Be of good courage. And I know it can feel like it's all about you, but there's so much more at stake. And so Joab rallies the army by saying it's not just about you guys, it's about the people back home. Let me ask you a question What are the battles that need to be fought right now for your family? Not in your family. Don't pick a fight with your spouse as a result of this message, or with your kids. And kids don't pick fights with your parents. It's not what the Bible says. What are the battles that need to be fought for your family? You need to fight a battle in the area of honesty. I mean, truly, is there something that's being unsaid? Is everything out on the table? Is there sin that needs to be confessed? In your house, does does something need to be brought out into the open? And with that said, is there something that's unforgiven in your house? Does forgiveness need to be put into practice? It needs to be a tool. It needs to be a weapon in your artillery every single time, the weapon of forgiveness so that bitterness does not come in and create disunity in your home. You talk about the things of God in your home. What are the big prayers you're praying for? Your home. I love that Pastor Todd has got our students right now going through a 40-day walk of prayer, circling the things that they believe God has put on their hearts, each one individually, circling those things, which is to say going to God consistently over and over and over again for 40 days in prayer. You know, I hope that at some point, and I, I think there's already been times like this, but I want there to be many, many more times. When my boys leave the house one day, my goal is not just for them to be nice people, they're already nice people. They're, they're good boys. My goal is for them to be able to see God move, not just at the church, but to see God move in our home in a way that they have this relentless faith themselves because they've seen it happen in our household. What are you praying for big in your house? Dad, what are you leading? Don't just think it's gonna happen because you brought him to church today. Don't just think it's going to happen. That's great, by the way, but don't just think that's going to happen. Don't just think it's going to happen because you go to the student thing on Wednesday night or, or, or whatever it is, but rather what are the proactive things you are doing to fight for your family? Is there an addiction or something that you are struggling with? Is there a mental illness that you need to get help with? Whatever it is, is there a battle that you feel like it is all about you to fight? Can I tell you, it is not just about you today. Let the inspiration be the peace in your home, the victory in your home, your spouse, your kids, whatever it is. You do what you know to do and then let God do what he knows to do. You get moving. He'll fight for you every time. And then Joab takes it one step further. He says, don't just be courageous today. Don't just be courageous for your people. He says, be courageous for our cities. What are the battles today that need to be fought for our community particularly in Northwest Atlanta, and God allows us to fight battles in other communities around the world. We fight spiritual battles in Guatemala and Burkina Faso and and Cuba, and who knows what kind of battles we're gonna get to continue to fight now in Cuba. That one could get exciting really quick. We're fighting battles in Nicaragua, our high school students are. What are the battles that need to be fought, though, in our local community, right here in our own backyard? A favorite verse I love when, when thinking about this, Jeremiah 29, 7 says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of your city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. I've seen this verse, you know, make the little, the little pictures, you know, you throw up on Instagram and I've watched people put this verse on with the Atlanta skyline in the background, and that's great. I'd I'd love to see the Spirit of God move in mighty ways in Atlanta and in the churches we partner with down there, and even friends in other churches down there. I'd love to see God do great things. But can I tell you, that's not necessarily what we need to be thinking about. What's a city when you read Scripture? What's a city in the Old Testament? Well, the main word in Hebrew that's translated for city can refer to any human settlement surrounded by a, a wall, So I know they're not really surrounded by walls, but neighborhoods. I mean, most ancient cities only numbered about 1,000, maybe 3,000 in population. Most of you do not have to drive or walk very far, whether you live in a neighborhood or you live in a piece of property on yourself to find 1,000 people. I mean, you live in a little city. It may be unnamed, it may be named, whatever it is, but in your, your neighborhood is a little city. Your school, students, is a little city. Pray for the welfare of your city. Work for the welfare of your city. We are to be active participants in the work that God wants us to do in our community. In a world that increasingly wants us to keep to ourselves, mind our own business, let people do what they're gonna do, it is our mandate as believers to own the lostness and to engage the hurts of our community. We have responsibilities. On the street where you live is someone suffering today, is someone grieving today. What can you do proactively? You can pray for them, you should do that. What can you do proactively beyond that to help bring peace to that place? Our schools are are filled with kids and students and families in need. Every school in this community, in Cobb County and Paulding County, even the schools that we deem to be affluent or to be doing fine, there are families in every single one of those communities. Go sit down with a teacher, go sit down with a counselor, go sit down with a principal and ask them, is there a kid in this place that I can mentor today? If God lays that on your heart. There are students that need to see positive role models, people chasing after God with everything they've got. They need to see men. They need to see women who've got their lives straight with Jesus at the center, what could your family, or better yet, what could your small group do to reach just 10% of your city, however you define your city? Say, I, I, I know there's 1,000 people in the neighborhood, but I don't know 1,000 people. Do you know 10, you know 10 of them? You know, whatever it is, write their names down. Begin to pray for them. And I guarantee you, God will give you the opportunity to be a part of his work in their lives. It moves your Christian walk from ordinary to extraordinary, from natural to supernatural. It's amazing when you begin begin to pray for those around you on the streets where you live. What would it look like for your home to be that shining city on a hill, illuminating the good news of Jesus Christ for people to see? I love that when people come here especially the first few times, and they haven't been here for worship before. I love hearing people say, you know, I pulled down that campus and pulled down to Westridge, and I just felt the Spirit of God in that place. I love that. And I believe it's true. The Spirit of God is in this place. But if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is, is in you, is on you. And so I'd love for us as families to get to the point where we are as aware of the Spirit of God pulling onto the street where we live, pulling onto the street where we live as we are pulling onto this campus. I want to read, thinking about our communities, I want to read one other verse that's read a lot. I'm sure can we think about our country and, and I think it's just a smidge out of context for how some people read it, so I just want to put it in its right place today and let God challenge us with it. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 says this. When I shut up the heavens, God says, God himself is speaking, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people, called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and attentive to the prayer that's made in this place. These are the very words of God. He's appeared to Solomon in a dream in this chapter. And Solomon has just built the temple, the building that his father David asked God to allow him to build. And God said, David, this one's not for you, but I'm gonna let one of your boys do it. And Solomon is the guy that gets to do it. So Solomon's dedicating this to God, he's consecrating it, which just means he's setting it apart beyond any other structure that he would build. And as a result of that, God says, I'll put my name on this house, on this place. I'll put my name on this house. And I believe that the promises God made to Solomon about his house on that day represent principles that are still true today. I believe God has written his name on this house I had to visit a lot of great churches over the last eight weeks God's written his name on the hearts and on other churches and other things but I believe God has written his name on this house and God promises to bless a community when God's people do what? Pray on their knees and pray and turn from their wicked ways, turn from their sin. It's a description of repentance, which means to have such a dramatic change of mind that it changes your actions and the very direction of your life. I believe that we as a church have a responsibility as Christ followers today to allow God to tend the garden of our soul, to pull the weeds, to do whatever it is so that every single one of us might be set apart in our attitudes and our actions with him. Is there anything in your life that needs to be repented of today that you need to change your mind about? Can I tell you anything that's not out in the open, bring it out there so that God can bring the healing he wants to bring. People use this verse to say, you know what, our country leaders... We need, to pray. we need to pray for them. And we should. There's other places in scripture that command us to. But we need to pray that those people will repent. We need to pray that this group will repent. That group will repent. But what the scriptures say is that the people of God are the ones who are to be continually in repentance mode and asking God to do what he's going to do in their house. And when, God takes, when we, the people of God follow him in this house, somehow in a way we cannot even begin to understand, it spills out onto the community around us. We're here today not just for ourselves. We're here today not just for our families. We're here today for a community of people and wherever God allows us to touch in our country and our world. And the key for this community to find healing, for broken families to be restored, for people to get rescued out of dark places, is a church desperate, desperate for God. Continually, in its own midst. Desperate in prayer, desperate in worship and in seeking his face. When we do what we know to do, we act justly, we love mercy, we walk humbly with our God, we love our neighbors, we love our enemies. When we do all of those things, God does what only he can do. And I'm desperate today to see him do a fresh work. New chapters, new stories are to be written of people who have been rescued and redeemed because of what God is doing in this house. Let's pray that he will make it so. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Today, I don't know what the circumstance is in your life, I don't know what God is speaking to your heart today, but I, I pray and I have confidence from God's word that the spirit of God will speak in your heart even louder than I would speak on a microphone from a pier. I don't know what the circumstances are that are weighing you down today. I don't know if you're feeling humiliated or frustrated. You might be just feeling defeated. You're tired of going out to the battle. You're tired of going home to the battle. You're tired of going to work to the battle, whatever it is, I want to give you some time right now to pray over that circumstance. Ask God what it is that he wants you to do. God, you work in each of our lives differently. You're sovereign. you got the whole world in your hands and yet you're personal. It's mind-blowing. You care about us. You care about the street where we live. You care about our families, our communities. So God, today I pray that you would give us the courage to follow you, to have a, a ruthless trust and faith. It's confident that you've got our best in mind and that you will do things in and through us that we could never even begin to ask or imagine. So, God, would you teach us your ways and we'll walk in your truth? Teach us what's the next right step is for each family here. And may we take it and may we watch you work, not just our kids and our our spouses, but may the community around us be refreshed and renewed because of what you're doing in the lives of your people. And we'll thank you for this and more until Jesus comes. In his name, amen.